Good morning. It's good to good to see you here this morning. I am I haven't been here since middle of November, so I'm going to reintroduce myself. I'm Randy Lanthrop, the senior pastor of Church in the Valley. I uh with my wife and two-year-old son, started Church in the Valley 28 years ago in Diamond Bar, and we added this campus in 2012, and it's, it's fun to see what God's doing here and be a part of that, uh, and I, I just really uh, enjoy the group that God's put together here. I, it feels like coming home for me. It seems so familiar. I grew up in Southgate, which is about not very far from here, down the 710 freeway. And so Alhambra, South, I used to come over here for pizza, to Petrillo's Pizza in San Gabriel. That's, that's awesome. If you ever get a chance to have it, it's fantastic. But it's good to be here this morning, and it's good to see some new faces and be able to share with you. We're in the middle of a series that we've called What's Best Today? And we've been looking at how to make the most of our time, which is our life. Our life's made up of time. And so we've been looking at what God says about making the most of our life. And what, what he says is, the way to have the best life is to stack up one good day after the next. Then at the end, you look back and you see just a whole bunch of good days stacked up, and that's a good life. That's, that's the best life we can have. The backdrop pe- passage for this series is Ephesians 5, 15 through 17 which says to look carefully how you walk and make the most of every opportunity that comes by. This, this is how God tells time. Opportunities flow by, and we need to recognize them and make the most of them. So we've been looking at what that means from different angles. First week, we looked at the villains of progress that derail us from knowing and choosing what's best from God's perspective, things like, Ambiguity, never deciding what's important in life, just letting, leaving that out there and never landing on what you think is most important. Uh, overload, things like that. Uh, last week, Alex talked here about a key statement in Scripture that's been called the great mandate because it gives this gargantuan sense of purpose and direction to everything we're doing in life. God's will encompasses every part of life. And so uh, we, we, we looked at that. I, I looked at it in Diamond Bar. Alex here at that statement and that mandate and what it means. And then we mentioned a couple others, the Great Commission, which is to make disciples, learn to obey, to teach others to obey. And then today we're going to look at another major gargantuan kind of statement. It's called the Great Commandment. We'll get to that in a moment. We're really spending some time today talking about the relational component of productivity. Uh, You you may be a high task person. You know, a a great day is when you're efficient. You get to check off a bunch of stuff off your box, uh, your to-do list, the boxes on your to-do list. Or you may be a highly relational person, more go with the flow. It's a great day when you can have several meaningful conversations and really enjoy others. I'm I'm kind of a mix. You're probably a mix, too. But if you get the mix right, and this is what we're talking about today, you have to often people can feel like interruptions and you have to decide as they come into your realm during the day, 
How, how much time do I give them? How, how do I choose to do this? The right mix can be like going to, you know, the, the, the machine at, at Wendy's or McDonald's, wherever, where you, you put, you know, you get your ice and then you put Coke, you get the Coke and perfect blend of syrup and carbonated water. It's fantastic. It tastes great. And that's, that's, that's what it's like if you, if you choose the right mix of what you're doing as you go through your day, what your focus is going to be, what you're going to do. It tastes good. You stack up a bunch of those days like that, and life tastes good. And God's given us a tremendous amount of help for knowing how to navigate these things. So no matter where you are on the spectrum of task and people, a major statement by Jesus gives more gargantuan direction and purpose to our life on what's best right now. At one point in his ministry, a lawyer came to Jesus and asked him, which of all of God's commandments, and there's a bunch of them, which of all of God's commandments is the most important? Jesus gives an astounding answer. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's the first and greatest commandment. The second one is, like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's the one that sticks in the mind of the lawyer. And he has a dialogue with Jesus about the neighbor thing. But Jesus says, loving God, loving people are the broad general commandments everything else fits under. So in typical Fashion, when the lawyer wants more clarification on what Jesus is saying, he tells a masterful story that draws a circle around those whom his followers are expected to love. And so we're, we're going to look at the story of the Good Samaritan this morning. First, here's how the man responds after Jesus tells him the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it's a defensive response. He says uh, in verse 29 of Luke 10, it says, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, hey, I don't know what was going on in his life right then. He may have just let somebody have. He just might have in anger blew up and just so he's like, OK, do, do I need to include the person that just really made me mad? You know, how how? Wide is this circle? What he's trying to do is limit the circle of those that he needs to love. And I can understand that natively. I, I like to shrink the circle, just keep the circle as small as possible so that I'm not expected to love people that, you know, are outside of my comfort zone. I, I really want to love people natively, naturally that I enjoy and I'm endeared to. I don't want to bother with others. So Jesus tells this story. Read it with me. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So here, here's these two guys. They're extremely religious guys. A priest and a Levite. Levites were the people who took care of all the details in the temple. 
And so they see this guy. He's been robbed. He's been left for dead. And they, they're on the same side of the street. They cross the street to avoid him and keep moving on. They drew a very tight circle around the people that they thought were worthy of their love and attention as they go through their day. And they ignored the needs of this man who'd been robbed and was hurting. Next, Jesus introduces a third character in the story, a Samaritan. A Samaritan was someone who was viewed by the Jewish people as lower class. Samaritans were hated and despised by Jews at the time. And Samaria is what's known as the West Bank today, so that hasn't changed much. A lot of animosity between the Jewish folks and the Samaritans. And so Jesus chooses this Samaritan to be the hero of the story. Let's see what happens. A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and uh, gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus then says, Which of these three do you think proved to be neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? (laughs) And if I'm the lawyer, I'm like, oh, okay, I get your point. He said, the one who showed mercy, this is the lawyer's response. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is what I mean. This powerful and very famous story draws the widest possible circle around those that Jesus' followers are called to love. The hero of the story is a despised Samaritan. And so the interesting thing is the Jewish folks who he's talking to, they're they're needing to admire someone that they typically would despise. So Jesus, in a masterful way, is drawing this huge circle Around the people that we're called to love if we're going to follow Christ. And he shows us that your neighbor, my neighbor and your neighbor, is the person right in front of you who has a need. That's that's who our neighbor is. The person right in front of you that flows by during your day who has a need. God put them in your path. If you're a follower of Christ, he brings people into your path. So that you can show love and kindness like he would. This is, this is our neighbor. God brings people around us all throughout the day. Family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, strangers, enemies. Some of the folks we really enjoy, others not so much. <laughs> I don't know about you. If you're honest, that's the way it is. Jesus' circle, though, for love is drawn around even our enemies. Widest possible circle. So Jesus is showing us that people are not interruptions to our day and to what we're trying to do to be productive, to check off our to-do list or whatever it is. 
People bring opportunities to do the good we were made to do, not problems to avoid. This simple but penetrating story gives us clear direction for our days. Whether or not you're a high task or a high people person, love is the most productive and it, it can, it, it, it can motivate you to produce that right mix between task and, and, and people. A Christ follower's guiding principle for life is love. If you and I want to have productive lives, we need to see that loving people is a major part of what's best as we live each day. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In the Greek that this was originally written in, the word imitators is mimetai. Mimetai. Sounds like mimic or imitate. And we're told to imitate the way that Jesus loved people sacrificially. The older I get, the more I remind my family and people who knew my dad of my dad. I, I can even hear him in my laugh and some comments I make and the way I respond to different things that are going on. I hope that I can imitate the, the best qualities of my dad. He was a very loyal person and had the gen, genuine interest of people in his heart. He's very interested in the people around him. If I could do that, that'd be great. But as a Christ follower, I'm called to imitate the one I follow. He's like a big brother to me, in a way. He's, he's, he became a man. And there's a scripture that says he he came to earth so that he could be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. This this way he came. And so he's he's the one we emulate. He's the one we mimic, the one we imitate as we decide what we're going to do with our time as the day flows by. We try to learn what Jesus would do. Excuse me. And we give our time to what he would give his time to do. He's the prime example that we have for loving people. This love was most graphically demonstrated by his death on the cross, where he offered up his life on behalf of sinful human beings. In kindness, he he looked to our need so that all who accept what he's done for them, receive pardon for their sin, and they, they can live. They can know God. They can live forever. Jesus' brand of love is not primarily an emotion. It's, it's active. Love in the New Testament sense is actively putting others' needs above my own. That means I have to shift my focus as the day is flowing by, from my own stuff, the things I got to do, what's going on at times, I've got to shift my focus to the people that are right there in front of me. How, how God, do I love them? How, how do I meet their needs? How do I handle my responsibilities and at the same time give them some, some attention that they, they need? How can I do both? How can I help them? 
What is it that I need to do right now, God? Think about the everyday implications of the command of love that we have there that Jesus talked about and that you find in Ephesians 5. If you add up the great commandment with the great mandate that we looked at last week, how, how God's will encompasses every part of life, then there is some major direction here for how to, how to go about living our life. You know, love can be the, the motive behind paying your bills. You know, you're loving your family. You're honoring God. You're loving him in a way. You're honoring him. Mowing our lawns is a way to love our neighbors on the block. If a yard's trashy, it, it impacts the feel of the neighborhood. I learned that early. I moved into a fixer-upper house, and um, we were fixing it up. We had a big pile of dirt in the front yard. And on a Friday morning, which is my day off, I was trying to get some rest from doing working and doing the house and everything. On a Friday morning, guy from the city called, hey, uh, 7 o'clock. And I, he could tell I just woke up. So he says something like, hey, I wish I had your job, you know, because I'd just woken up on a Friday morning. And I thought, I don't, I don't think you really want my job. <laughs> But anyway, uh, he said, hey, some neighbors, several neighbors called, and they're complaining about the pile of dirt in your front yard. I went by. I can tell you're renovating. You know, it's no problem. But if you could move the, the pile of dirt as soon as possible, that'd be great. So I, this, this lesson here about loving your neighbors by taking care of your yard sort of driven into my heart and memory there. <laughs> By that experience. So, hey, we, we, we need to consider the people around us with the way we're handling our own responsibilities. This is love. This is a part of love. Doing our work with excellence is a way to look to the interests of our boss and coworkers. So it's a way to love them. Taking initiative to do more than expected speeds us toward the objective. Even paying taxes. I mean, I don't know. The year clicks over and you know it's time that April 15th is coming. E- even paying our taxes is, is a way to honor God. He told us to do it. Jesus said, pay your taxes. And some of our dollars even go to help people in need. People who really need help. They've lost a job or they're trying to get back on their feet some way. So we, this is the way we, we can love. Moms being interrupted for the hundredth time this week can listen and respond in the moment. And that can be really productive, very, very helpful. It may seem like you can't get anything done. You, you know, the, the list is the, the items on your list that you're going to be able to get accomplished that day shrinking. But this investment in the kids, this is a very important investment. The, the, the listening and the training, very productive. Love is at the heart of true productivity. That's what Jesus is saying here. If you really want to have a fruitful, productive life, then you need to love people as your day flows by. This is, this is the way to true productivity. Love increases productivity Unloving thoughts, words, and actions decrease it. Let's think about this. On the job, we can waste 
all kinds of company resources as we stew and harbor bitterness, resentment, malice, anger, enmity. We, we, we just were wasting time as this stuff eats away. Relational conflict eats up hours and hours of opportunity, and it spreads like a cancer through the, the group. Wasting more time. People log in sick days because they're sick of the people at work. <laughs> this, this has happened. This happens, man. It's like you might as well open the drain and let all the resources go down the drain right there. In church life, we're, we're pulling together for a mission of eternal proportions. Unloving words and deeds and attitudes are totally counterproductive. Complaining about our leaders is, is a literal drag on our progress. It's true at work. It's true here in church life. It's true anywhere you're a part of a group. A literal drag and drain on the energy that we could be putting in toward our mission. If you have concerns, the scripture demands that you talk to the one over you, not the people beside you, the one who can help with the problem, not the people who are just going to ramp it up. Backbiting, talking behind a person's back, it, it ramps up animosity and decreases the fruitfulness of our efforts. This is true at work, in church life, in a ministry you're a part of. This is the way it works. Most of the time, we consider the cost of showing love. Oh, you know, that somebody, we, we, we're going through our day, we've got it all mapped out, and we've got our list, and it's pretty long today, maybe 15, 20 long. We've got these things we've got to try to do, and uh-oh, we just found out about a need. This need crops up, and somebody needs some help. We tend to think about the time, the energy, the money that it's going to take to help this person, and we start getting tired. But we also need to, to consider the cost of unloving things that derail our progress toward the good goals that God wants us to work toward. We, we need to think about this. In contrast with the way anger, malice, bitterness, and conflict grind away at the wheels of progress, I want to lay out some practical snapshots of loving others God's way. These are all from the New Testament, from the Scripture, and uh, I'd encourage you sometime this week, take the time if you'd like to to look over these and read the passages that go with them. I'm not going to take the time to read the passages as we walk through. The first snapshot, choose to multiply goodwill toward others. If you have malice in your heart, malice is deep-seated ill will toward another person. If you have malice in your heart, do whatever you can to get rid of it with God's help. Because that is a total waste. Enmity, I like that word, enmity. It means animosity. Sometimes you, you ever get up out of bed and you just, you got this, oh, animosity working? We, you know, it's, we say they got up on the wrong side of the bed. Okay. But 
That completely takes you sideways, not toward the goal. So if you have animosity, if you have malice, bitterness, resentment, get rid of it. It's a waste. And it's taking away from what God wants us to develop, which is goodwill. He wants us to multiply goodwill. And the way it works is, first week of this series, we looked at Psalm 34. It says, if you want to have a good day, turn away from evil and do good. To multiply goodwill... We have to keep turning away from evil, ill will, and do the good that God calls us to do. That means we've got to work this stuff out. Cooperation makes families, workplaces, and churches fruitful. Goodwill is like rocket fuel for cooperation. It just moves things forward in in these areas. Second, put the other person first. Like the Good Samaritan, you stop what you're doing and, and where you're going to help with the needs of the, the others that are around you. Third, be eager in meeting the needs of others, not begrudging and reluctant. I, I need help with this. I need God's help. I need the Holy Spirit to help me be eager to meet the needs of others. If I'm walking with him, if I'm walking with God, relying on his help and his power to live life, he helps me get past my selfishness. He makes me eager. But I've got to stay in touch with him. I've got to deal with the other stuff that's going to bog me down. Fourth, do good without demanding a return. Jesus talked about this in Luke 6. If you do good and expect payback, that's not love. That's selfishness, because you're doing it for yourself. So, if we do more, if we if we do good without demanding a return, which is what Jesus tells us to do, we wait for the reward from Him, who has the power to reward. Fifth, do more good than expected. Jesus talked about this. There was a a thing in the culture. With the Romans, a Roman soldier could demand that you carry their armor uh, one mile. And Jesus, at one point in in the Sermon on the Mount, one of the famous messages he he shared, um, he says, "If if you're asked to carry that coat one mile, take it too." He says, "Do more than is expected." This delights the people around you. This delights your coworkers, your friends, your family, your, the people here in church life, in your ministry that you're a part of. It, th- this is a delight, and God Himself is delighted as you as you do more than than's expected. Now let's take a moment as we wrap up here to think about the impact of living this kind of life on a typical day. If, if you're able to choose this mix of love throughout the day, this, this might be what, what it looks like. You get up in the morning and you stumble into the kitchen for breakfast. That's kind of what I do. I stumble in there I, trying to get to the coffee. If you, if you stumble into the kitchen and you're looking for ways to serve, maybe you make someone else's coffee in the family or your roommate. You make their coffee before you make their, your, your own. Now, 
Before, I'll admit before I wrote this, that thought hadn't occurred to me. <laughs> but say you do that. You make their coffee before you make, or, or as you're stumbling into the kitchen, you, you just mentioned something encouraging. That, that's, your, your aim is to do that. Your husband or wife goes throughout the rest of the day with a good taste in their mind about that. Your roommate is off on their day a little more motivated because you didn't just take care of yourself. You get to work and instead of dragging your feet to do what the boss asks you to do because it's the very thing you dread, he just asks you to do the thing you hate about your job. But instead of dragging your feet, you get after it right away. You give everything you've got to it. Hey, you've just saved a bunch of time. You, you have just really multiplied the efforts here. Otherwise, you might spend them complaining or just stewing about not wanting to do it. You multiply the effort if you anticipate and give thought to the goal and the best ways to do things versus just doing exactly what's in your job description or what you're told to do by whoever it is that's asking you to do it. So after work, you meet a friend for dinner. And this is right before you're going to go to the group at church or, or, uh, and that you belong to. Instead of rehearsing all the faults of your coworkers, family members, maybe the boss, you, you aim, as you get in that conversation, you're aiming to give them uh, some encouragement, a little lift to their day. And so as you do that, you aren't trying to extract what you need from the conversation, but you're trying to give them something. You're trying to give something away. And that makes all the difference. You get to the church group meeting that night, and, and your, your thinking isn't dominated with getting what you need from the group or evaluating whether the topic that night was the right one to choose. You're focused on trying to figure out, how do I help this leader accomplish their goal? Or you're listening to what God might be saying to you through that topic, even maybe you've been through it a few times. Someone shares a need, and you aim to refresh them. And as you take the focus off of yourself throughout the day, God refreshes you. This is what God says. Aim to be a refreshment to the people around you, and you yourself will be refreshed. This is what love looks like. How it factors into living the best, most productive day. Imagine how good life would be if this were the norm in our families, at our work, in church life, at school, and, and everywhere else. This would be great. Jesus wants to help you and I take the steps we can to move toward the best picture for our days. He widens the circle of those we must love, to include everyone we come in contact with. I'd like to ask you, if you would, to take the connection card that's in your program. That, or It may not be there anymore, but if you could take that out, find it, and begin to fill out, uh, finish completing the card that you may not have had a chance to complete. 
On the back of that, there's some next steps I want to encourage you to take, or you may have something else God spoke to you about. Um, But as you're completing the information, when the offering ushers come by, you can drop the card in the offering basket. That'd be great. So here, here are my suggestions on next steps. First one, for the first time, I'm choosing to accept Christ as my Savior and will follow him as Lord. Maybe you've been investigating what it means to follow Christ, and you're ready to go ahead and cross the line and say, God, I... I accept, Jesus, what you've done on the cross, and I, just, I am deciding to follow you as my Lord. You're ready to do that. Let us know. We'd love to help encourage you in that. We will send you some resources to help get established in that decision. The second step would be to read the passages next to the practical snapshots this week and ask God to speak through them, something you could do. And then finally... I will replace what's unloving. You can fill in a specific attitude or action, some words maybe that you say. I am going to replace that, what's unloving, with love and write out what you do to do that. Let's ask God to help us take these steps that he's laid on our heart. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the truth we see in your word and how it guides and helps us to do your will, and to do the good that you've made us to do. I pray for the power to do the steps that you've laid in our hearts. And as you've spoken to us this morning, I pray for your help in seeing how to translate that into everyday life. We ask for your help in this, God, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.